it is my pleasure, our pleasure, to be here with you all this morning. I'll just briefly introduce myself again for those of you who don't know me yet. My name is Chris Skinner. It's my wife, Casey, in the second row there. And uh, we are missionaries with WEC International, which stands for Worldwide Evangelization for Christ, and are planning to be plant church planters um, in South America among an unreached people group with whom I've already worked for about five and a half years before I met my wife. And uh, we are so honored to be here with you guys, um, to be invited here to spend time with you as we get to know each other better, as we seek the Lord's will um, for a potential partnership, and it's also an enormous privilege to be able to share from you from the word this morning. Um, I am really excited to look at this passage that we just read um, with you guys this morning because it has a special place in my heart. Um, it is one that the Lord has used to inspire me and to clarify to me uh, what the ministry was uh, that he had planned for me and eventually for my family. But first, I think it would be helpful to briefly refresh your memory about the letter of Romans as a whole. So let's, I think we already have our Bibles open to chapter 15. Um, and before we look at that, I just want to make a brief comment. If you're uh, visiting today and you're not super familiar with the Bible, I'm going to be using the term Gentile a lot today. That term just means, in, in the Bible, it just means anyone who's not Jewish. And so there were the Jews, and then there were everyone else, which were the Gentiles. Um, so yeah, you'll hear that word a lot as we go through this. And so as you remember, the letter was written uh, by the Apostle Paul to all of the Roman Christians likely around the year 57 A.D., on Paul's third missionary journey while he was on the front lines in the city of Corinth. And Paul seems to have two main reasons for writing this letter. First, to preach the gospel to the Roman believers and by its implications exhort the Jewish and Gentile Christians to live in harmony with one another in the unity of Christ for the glory of God. The second, having laid that foundation of the gospel, was to inspire the Roman Christians to become partners with him in the advancement of the gospel to Spain. And before we get into today's passage, I think it's important to see what Paul was talking to leading up to verse 8. So in chapter 14, in the first seven verses of chapter 15, Paul was urging the Roman, Jewish, and Gentile Christians to live in harmony with one another. This was because some of the Jewish Christians uh, were still observing some of the Old Testament laws, while others, predominantly Gentiles, were not, and this was creating tension in the church. This is important because we need to realize that as we start with verse 8, Paul is giving the reason for everything he said in that previous section. And I would argue that verses 8 through 13 are more or less actually a summary of the entire letter of Romans up to this point. Not only a summary, but a bridge into the next part of the letter where Paul returns to that which we that which he mentioned at the very beginning of the letter, which was to talk about the ministry that God had given him. With that in mind, there are three main points from the text that I want us to see. There are many more things that we could learn from this text, and certainly we should, but today I just want us to look at these three things. The first is Paul's gospel. The second is Paul's mission. And the third is Paul's hope for the Roman Christians in regard to that mission. Paul's gospel, Paul's mission, and Paul's hope for the Roman Christians. First, Paul's gospel. Let's look at verse 8 again. It says, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember now, right before this, in verse 7, Paul prays that the Roman and Jewish, the Roman Jewish and Gentile Christians will live in unity as they welcome one another as Christ has welcomed them. That begs the question, how has Christ welcomed the Jewish and Gentile Christians? Well, Paul has already described that in great detail in the first 11 chapters of this letter. So here in verse 8, he's just summarizing it by saying that Christ has welcomed them by coming and fulfilling God's promises as the Jewish Messiah, which meant salvation for the believing Jews. But then he adds, this was also so that the Gentiles might glorify him for his mercy. He then goes on to prove it in verses 9 through 12 by quoting the Old Testament in four different places to show that the promises that were given to the patriarchs have always included the Gentiles, not just the Jews. I think it's really interesting, though, which, which text Paul selects from the Old Testament for a couple of different reasons. First, Paul is quoting here from 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and Isaiah which means that Paul is quoting from the historical books, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Paul is quoting from four different parts of scripture and four different moments along the timeline of Israel's history. Paul is hitting them again and again and again to say that it has always been God's plan throughout all of scripture and all of Israel's history to welcome in the Gentiles just as he did for the Jews. Paul could not make this any clearer for them. No, we don't really have the time to do what I would like to do with these quotes. Um, but what is even more interesting to me uh, about these particular quotes is that when you go back and read all of them in their original context, which you can't do right now, but hopefully later you'll go and do, you'll begin to notice sort of a strange trend. Uh, what you will see is that if you think back to the Old Testament, you have Israel into the promised land, and they, they, they would fall into this cycle of rebelling against God, if you remember. They would go and they would worship and they would go after the false gods of the Gentiles, which are actually called demons in the text. God would then bring disaster on Israel, which included being conquered and oppressed by those Gentiles and their so-called gods. Then when Israel was at their lowest point, they would cry out to God for mercy and salvation from their oppressors. And God would come in and rescue them by giving them military victory over the Gentiles. Now, this, the interesting part is that each time that God is praised among the Gentiles in these quotes that Paul is using from the Old Testament, it comes immediately after the Gentile nations and their gods have been defeated by the Lord as he saves Israel out of their hands. That should make us wonder, why would the Old Testament Gentiles praise God for defeating them? Or to put it another way, why would they be told to rejoice in their own defeat? I mean, think about that for a second. If you were an Old Testament Gentile in those times, and your city just got destroyed by the God of Israel, and then you were told to be rejoice, wouldn't you be like a little confused at best? Who rejoices in their own defeat? I think the key to understanding this can be found in Isaiah 56. It says this, And the Gentiles who join themselves to the Lord, 
to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, for a few of the surviving Gentiles, who after being conquered by the God of Israel, rightly recognized the superior power of Yahweh over their own gods, who were not able to save them, and who also rightly recognized the beauty of his merciful salvation to Israel, who did not deserve it, those Gentiles might then realize that they have been living in a kingdom of darkness, under the tyranny of demonic forces who have been deceiving them all along. If the lights come on and their eyes are open to that truth, they would see that this conquering God is a merciful one. And they might surrender, bow their knee to him, crying out for mercy that he would not only spare their life, but even allow them to be brought into his kingdom, a better kingdom, the kingdom of light, to live under the reign of the good God of heaven and earth. And that is why the Gentiles are told to praise God for defeating them and their useless idols. Their defeat, if they humbled themselves and surrendered, would mean their emancipation from the kingdom of darkness and from the wrath of God to their inclusion into the people of God. And they would have never seen it had God not come and conquered them. And that is a picture of the gospel. And this was God's plan all along. Though most of the Gentiles in the Old Testament would not surrender and would continue to fight against God to their death, Paul is now using this picture through the new lens of Christ. God, through Jesus Christ, has defeated his people's greatest enemies, sin and death, and is crushing the head of the devil himself, who has ruled over humanity for thousands of years. And now anyone, both Jew and Gentile, who rightly recognizes the superior power and beauty of Christ, who while we were still enemies of God, died the enemy's death in our place, and then rose victoriously from the grave. Anyone who believes this and cries out to God for mercy will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and will be given the right to belong to the people of God And that is Paul's gospel. Do you still feel it? Can you feel the weight of that this morning? Do you see the beauty of it? Can you remember when sin reigned over you? When you couldn't get free from the darkness? Do we not rejoice in the defeat of those idols we once held dear? because we rightly recognize that God is infinitely better. When we rightly understand the gospel, it gives us hope that produces joy and peace. What does the gospel make you want to do but praise him for his mercy among the nations? Paul knew that preaching this gospel to the Romans would not only inspire them to live in harmony, glorifying God together with one voice, 
but it would also be the fuel that would motivate them for ministry, which is why he uses this picture of the gospel as the bridge to talk about his mission. So let's look for a minute at Paul's mission in verses 14 through 21. We'll first look at how he defines it, and then we'll see the strategy for carrying out that mission. In verses 15 and 16, he defines it by saying, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul talking about here? Why is he using the sort of like sacrificial temple worship type language in this passage? I think it becomes a little clear when you understand this language that he's using comes from a prophecy in Isaiah 66. It's Isaiah 66, 18 through 20. It says this, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, Lud, who draw the bow, and to Baal and Shaban, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And this is the key part. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and litters and mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So Paul likely saw his ministry as uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy and wanted the Roman Christians to know that it had been given to him by God as part of God's plan to rescue people from every corner of the globe. This isn't some little plan that Paul cooked up by himself. He wants to take the gospel to Spain because this is the awesome plan of God. A ministry worth glorying in, as he does in verses 17 and 18. Paul then goes on to talk about his strategy in carrying that out. His aim, which he also mentions at the very beginning of the letter, is to bring the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. How has he been doing that? He says, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. By preaching the gospel and watching as the Holy Spirit confirms his words by power, by his power. But what he says next is very surprising. He says that he has already done this and accomplished his work from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now, on this map, which you all might have seen before, uh, that is the area between Jerusalem and modern-day Albania. And to give you an idea, I once heard from a sermon of a friend, uh, that that is the area from Minneapolis to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It's a massive area. And we know that Paul planted many churches in these areas, but surely he didn't go and preach to every single village and town in this um, region. So how then can he say that he has no more room for work in these regions? 
He can say that because Paul's strategy was to plant churches in major cities in these regions with the expectation that these local churches would then grow and multiply to fill in the gaps between them and the next major city. That is part of God's plan. Paul could say his work was done there because he knew that he couldn't and wasn't supposed to reach every single person in the world by himself. God gave him a specific role within his redemptive plan that he would then summarize in verses 20 and 21 by saying this, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, I can remember when I was back in college and uh, had just started to study missiology, which is the study of missions. And I was sitting in one of our classes, and our professor had invited a missionary couple to come in and talk to us about their ministry in Southeast Asia. Um, now, up to this point, I had been invo- involved in missions a little bit, like I had gone on a few different uh, short-term trips. But these were mostly in places where the church was already established and we were doing some sort of project or something like that. I was still pretty ignorant to the situation in, in, in the entire world. Um, but I can remember this couple coming in and telling us about their ministry and describing to us a boat trip that they took to a remote, a remote region that they had never been to before. And so they took this boat out on this, I think it was a river, and went out and they pulled up to a house that was built to float on the water there. And uh, they were invited into the owner's home and they sat down and started to talk with them. And the people were like, what are you doing here? Like, why have you come so far? And the missionaries responded by saying, well, we've, we've come to tell you about a man named Jesus. And they asked the family in the, in the common language there, have you ever heard anyone named Jesus? The reply was no. Who's that? And they're like, but wait, so you've never heard that name before? Have you, have you ever seen a book with this name in it or seen it on a building or something? any of your people ever heard about a man named Jesus? And they said, no, we don't know him. That was the first time I had ever heard that there were people in this world who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And it wouldn't have unless someone went and told them. As I listened to the missionaries go on about Um, how they shared the story of the Bible with these people and thought about all that Jesus was to me and had done for me, something happened inside of me. I was struck with both the heartbreaking reality that this gospel still has not been preached in the entire world, but then also with this weight of like, what a glorious privilege to be able to go and, and tell someone about Christ where he's not yet been named. I believe that God started to grow a desire in my heart that day. And I didn't quite understand yet. And it wasn't until the Lord helped me to understand with these verses that we just read, verses 20 and 21 and Romans 15. So much so that I actually put it on my very first prayer card (laughs) back in 2014 when I first joined WEC. 
<laughs> when I read those words for the very first time, my heart swelled and I thought, this is it. This is what the Lord wants me to do, I think. <laughs> and so I started to pray and I said, Lord, I will go anywhere and I will do anything you want me to do. Please just show me where your son is not known and I will go and make him known. And he did and I did. Maybe you're not called to be a Paul-type missionary to some unreached people group far away, but maybe you are. Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever considered it? Have you prayed and asked God to show you what he wants for your life? Children, as you think about what you want to be when you grow up, ask God what he wants you to do. What are his dreams for your life? He has plans in store for you, each one of you. Regardless of whether you're called to that type of ministry or some other type that is just as important, if you are a Christian this morning, the beauty of the gospel and the glory of the task of making Christ known among the nations should stir your heart. Does it? Can you see how awesome this is? Paul expected the Roman Christians to see it. Paul knew that by reminding them of the gospel and explaining to them God's plan of salvation for all nations, that they would want to help him in his ministry. He believed this so much that he moves from, I hope to see you and be helped on my way to Spain, to I will leave for Spain by way of you in just one paragraph. Paul was so confident in the effect the gospel would have. With, the gospel, with this gospel partnership in mind, Paul hopes that the Roman church, Paul hopes for the Roman church to become like a sending base for him. But what did he hope that that would look like? We can see in the text that Paul certainly desires help with material blessings on his journey, but it is so much more than that. Paul longed to see them, to spend time with them, to enjoy their company, to be refreshed by their faith. He mentions multiple times in the letter how he desires to encourage them, but also be encouraged by them. Even though Paul didn't plant this church and had never been there before, he did know some of the Christians there. We can see that in chapter 16 when he gives the greetings. He had a genuine love for them, and they for him, and he was eager to meet those who he didn't know yet. He speaks of how he labors in prayer for them and pleads with them to pray for him as he faced the threat of death everywhere he went. Not only that, but he was also informing them, the Romans, of his current ministry plans and asking them to pray that it would be successful because he knows that nothing good can happen unless God does it through him. He also desired that the churches in all of these regions might accept one another and work together for the advancement of the gospel. Paul desired a loving, mutually beneficial relationship with the Roman church that would produce fruit within them, all, within them all, but also through them as they reached out with the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are so encouraged that RBC is a church that desires to help make Christ known where he is not. As you know, the full number of the Gentiles has not come in. There are still those who have never heard and therefore cannot 
understand, and therefore cannot be saved. Entire peoples, entire regions, with the glory of Jesus and the mystery of the gospel has not yet been made known. Because of this and because of God's leading, Casey and I and our little baby, who's not yet born, have made it our ambition to go to the unreached in the Amazon rainforest. That they might glorify God for his mercy. We are humbled that you guys would consider partnering with us uh, in this ministry, and we desire that. We would love for that to happen. But regardless of how the Lord guides you in that decision, our greatest desire is that we would all respond to what we've heard today. So here are a few things that we can take with us from today's message, from today's text. As we saw in the text, um, first application is, as we saw in the text, there is an expectation that the local church should be filling in the gaps by reaching out to her neighbors with the gospel of Jesus. In our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, we are surrounded by people who are still living in darkness who don't yet realize the superior power and beauty of Christ. Who can you think of in these circles that needs to hear about Jesus? I encourage you to pray today and ask the Lord for the courage and love necessary to reach out to these people with the gospel of grace. Second, if you are here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to King Jesus, he is inviting you into his kingdom right now. You can be free. He already defeated your sin by taking the punishment for you on the cross. If you will but surrender control of your life, and give it to him, cry out to God for mercy, he will save you from the darkness. For those of us who do belong to Jesus, might there yet be an area of our heart which we still have not fully surrendered to him? Some nagging sin that is slowly but surely pulling us away from him? Maybe we're like the Old Testament Israelites that have gone after the gods of this world to satisfy some desire that only God can truly satisfy. If that is you this morning, confess it. Cry out to God for mercy. Let his love and light shine into the dark corners of your heart. And lastly, I think it is likely that everyone in this room is probably a Gentile, albeit from many different nations. Can we all just take a moment to appreciate that we have been reached with the gospel? Let's glorify him with one voice for that incredible mercy. Let's pray. Father, we do glorify you. We give you praise, Lord. We are so glad that you have reached us with your gospel, Lord, and you have brought us to yourself You've had mercy on us, Lord. We were citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and you came, and you conquered our hearts, Father, and you showed us that you're better, that all those things we trusted in were not enough. They couldn't save us, not from the darkness, not from your wrath. Only you, through your Son, can save. And Lord, 
We are so grateful and we rejoice in that. Only you are worthy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.